At our last um, one-day retreat that we had um, here at Sawtell in November last year, <coughs> I uh, <coughs> talked about a, a poem by the Rumi mystic, uh, sorry, by Rumi, the uh, Sufi mystic, called The Guest House. And um, I would like to sort of continue that talk. So this is kind of like the guest house part two. So <clears throat> for those of you who uh, weren't here in November, I'll just read the poem out to you again. The guest house. <clears throat> this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, Treat each guest honourably. He or she may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. In um, classical Zen literature, um, there's a, uh, a large collection of stories or what I call Zen dialogues, and they're called koans. And um, if I was to try and summarize all those stories and dialogues, it probably comes down to two questions. And the first question, which uh, relates to the, the primary uh, koan, or koans, there's a number of primary koans, really boils down to something like, who am I? Who am I? And um, and the other koans, the secondary koans, um, I probably summarize them as something like, <clears throat> once you've realized who you are, then how do you express that in your daily life? So this question of who I am is, is, is central. And uh, is central to the, uh, the desire that we have to uh, be happy and alleviate suffering. I guess um, if you were to ask someone on the street who they were, then you would normally get 
a number of answers related to various external or public domains. So, uh, my name is Andrew. <clears throat> I, uh, I am married to such and such a person. I work in such and such a job. I was born in such and such a place, etc. From a Zen point of view, these, these are all more answers in terms of our identity, our social identity. And um, do not actually address the question of who am I fundamentally, which is the, what the Zen question is asking us. <clears throat> the reason why I like the, um, the poem, The Guest House, is that um, in terms of talking about this fundamental question of who I am, it's something that can only be directly experienced, but when we talk about it, we have to talk in metaphors. And uh, the guest house is a good metaphor. It, um, it captures something about contemporary psychological understandings of the self. Um, for about 30 or so years, maybe 20 or 30 years now, uh, um, a lot of contemporary uh, psychologists and psychotherapists um, have moved away from the idea of a unitary self, more towards the idea of a multiple self. Um, This was even present back in the turn of the uh, 20th century when Sigmund Freud was first uh, paving the way for psychotherapy when he uh, <coughs> had his structural theory of the personality. Where he, I don't know whether you've ever read Freud, but he talked about the id, the ego, and the superego. And um, basically what he meant by that was the, the id was this cauldron of instincts which formed around the life and the death instincts of all the, the sexual and the aggressive drives. And the, uh, the superego was the kind of um, how we internalize the, the rules and norms of our society uh, or how we internalized our parents. And, uh, it was kind of like our conscience and the ego was the kind of uh, this entity in the middle that tried to negotiate between the two and um, so the ego would come under lots of pressure from the id to express these impulsive, aggressive and sexual drives and would, uh, so uh, repression would occur so that we could uh, continue to survive but the cost of repression was various symptoms. That was his model. But um, <clears throat> there was another uh, very uh, less well-known um, neurologist at the time called Janet, Pierre Janet, who was working in Paris, around about the same time Freud was working in Vienna. And uh, he pioneered the work in what's now known as dissociation. And, um,
So, I don't know if anybody here has ever seen the uh, American series, The United States of Tara, for example. Uh, that was a, uh, a series that um, was made around the uh, diagnostic, uh, uh, diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder, disorder, which used to be known as multiple personality disorder. Have you, have you all come across the idea of multiple personality disorder in your time? The idea that um, people can, can have these different sub-personalities and um, that take over and uh, people have no memory, of, there's like an amnesic barrier between... Have you ever, ever come across that? Travels? Ever heard of that? Yeah, and so... And then our understanding of dissociation is that it's related to um, Early, usually early childhood trauma, uh, and um, and it's a it's a form of uh, of defence when uh, the reality the reality of the situation is so unbearable that uh, we need to split off into a not me part. So the terrible thing that's happening is not me. Interestingly, um, over the past thirty years. Um, what has happened is that there's been a, this has become like a almost, maybe not quite mainstream, but this understanding of having multiple cells or subpersonality is being seen as the normal way in which we operate. And um, so um, you can look at it from a um, from an evolutionary psychological perspective or from neuroscience, uh, this idea of being able to, um, these different um, self-states or cells uh, adapt to the particular environment that's presenting itself at that particular point in time. And uh, they're primarily uh, 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 adapting to in order to survive. And, um, and, fun and funnily enough, um, this ability that human beings have to shift from one state to another, um, not quite so dramatically as in dissociative identity disorder, but this idea that we can almost like there's a kind of stage and there's a spotlight on the stage and there's one character comes centre stage for a while and then moves off and then another character comes centre stage and then moves away and there's all these other characters waiting in the shadows to come on when we need them. Um, it's become a, quite a way of understanding how as human beings we're able to change while staying the same. So there's a sense in which we're moving, shifting through these different self-states but there's a continuity. So we still have our, our identity as Andrew, but Andrew is sometimes different in different situations. This is the idea of these different selves coming to the centre. <clears throat> yeah, from a Buddhist point of view, you could see that there's this idea of just constantly being uh, uh, um, reborn in different states all the time, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Um, so it's uh, also you'll find in if you anthropology, like um, we look at anthropology, and we know that this idea of the unitary self, um, 
centered uh, 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 this idea we all have um, of a unitary self and a unitary identity is something that's probably quite unique to um, how Western civilization has developed um, in terms of our secular culture today and uh, the sense of having a self, um, which is quite different to most indigenous cultures. Um, they were the experience of self is much more collectivized in different ways. I'm not an expert on that area, but um, the experience is different. <clears throat> so, um, the, the metaphor of the guest house is something that's um, also found in, in Buddhist, Zen Buddhist literature as well. Um, where there's often a reference to the, uh, the, the lord of the house or the, the host. And, um, and then the, the guests. Uh, and there's, there's so... Um, we can think of the guests in the house as being these different parts that we all have. And... Um, What I've, what I've found, and you have to verify this with your own experience, but um, um, we, the, when, when the, the, the guests uh, tend to, uh, when, they're sent, when they're center stage, um, tend to have an amnesia, like they, 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 they sort of forget that there's a, um, there is a, there is a, uh, a lord of the house or a host. Um, they come on centre stage and they think they're the, well, they're, they think they're the, they're the centre of the house. And, um, and funnily enough, we, um, what happens is we, uh, we, 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 we tend to go along with that. We tend to identify with that particular guest. Um, whether that guest, and, and um, in identifying with that guest, we, we become forgetful of the fact that there is a host. And, um, but in, in our Zen practice and in the practice that of this particular school of Zen, we are encouraged to, um, one of the practices we are encouraged to do is to um, step back and observe our thoughts and our emotions as they're arising from moment to moment. And, uh, and sometimes to, to label those thoughts and emotions. Um, that sense of stepping back and labelling a thought or emotion is one way of um, practising disidentification or de defusing from that particular thought or emotion um, so that we're not totally identified with it and so we have a bit of spaciousness and um, a part. Parts can be seen um, in the same way as we would normally label label um, um, thoughts and, and emotions, um, parts have their own. You can think of them almost as subpersonalities. Different parts have a personality which have their own history and their own emotions and their own thoughts. And uh, we can step back and, and start to uh, become aware, if we can, of these parts as they're arising. Often, that's really difficult to do. 
especially if it's a highly emotionally charged situation, which is when the difficulties happen. Um, one of the uh, um, interesting models of therapy that I've come across recently um, in our Promised Land and Sawtell groups, we have been uh, discussing um, some psychoanalytical perspectives on the self and the work of Barry Maggi, who's my Zen teacher in the States. Um, but there's, a, there's another model of therapy which I find very useful in my work, um, which is called uh, internal family systems um, therapy, which was developed by um, a guy called Dick Schwartz or Richard Schwartz, who was a, who was a family therapist. And in his work with families, um, you know, uh, family therapy distinguished itself from psychoanalysis by focusing on the interactions of family members and you try to um, create interventions with how people are interacting with, with each other to change the dynamics of a family and therefore hopefully, you know, you had this idea often of, of, the, of the child who carried all the, the, the stuff that the family was going through and the child was centred as the problem but really if you, if you, if you located the child in the context of the family and, and, and saw what was going on, you could understand that it's not just the, the child's not just a problem, it's a problem in the way of the system of the family. So this idea of a system, families were systems. It had all these different interactions. And, um, and unfortunately what family therapy did though, and that's a wonderful, a wonderful way of thinking and, in, and, and insightful step, but it tended to then sort of put a black box around the internal experience of the person. So as a family therapist, you'd focus a lot more on the external stuff that was going on, but you wouldn't explore the internal experiences. And when Richard Schwartz was working with um, um, clients, say, who had eating disorders or self-harm, um, he, he was bumping up he was bumping up against difficulties and, and found that he was trying too hard to try and bring change and it wasn't happening. So he started, the, 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 the people he was working with, started to, he started to try and get to know what was the, their internal experience. And, and what he found, like we often do, people talked about parts. Well, there's a part of me that feels this way, but there's this other part of me that actually feels like this. And there's another part of me that comes like this. And, um, so he started to inquire into these different parts that people were presenting with and start to give them, um, uh, rather than say, for example, um, trying to um, um, get rid of or um, you know, cut out or, you know, to, uh, the, um, the part that was um, suicidal or self-harming, self and kind of try and get to know that part. And, um, so he started to work with people in a kind of much more accepting way of these different parts. And um, what he discovered was people tended to have um, sort of, you know, they, they, would, they would have, the parts would be idiosyncratic, but you could see how there were some similarities between all these different parts that people had. And... Um, there need to be three levels. So there were the parts, often childlike parts, that had been um, badly, badly hurt, um, traumatized, and uh, and um, 
these, these, these parts he called exiles because these were the parts that tended to be compartmentalized and cut off from our experience because it was the, the intensity of, of, of that hurt, um, of the, the shame that fit in, the pain was just too overwhelming and too difficult to deal with. So they were shut away. And these other parts then formed around the exiles, and he, he called these the protector parts. It makes sense. I mean, most, most psychotherapy talks about people have defense mechanisms or protective strategies that we all need and we all use, and, uh, which form fairly early in our lives. And um, so he started to identify these protector parts. And, um, and these protector parts he called the managers because it was their job to manage the internal and the external environment to ensure that these exiles didn't get triggered. Um, and they did their best. But, you know, as we know, uh, sometimes uh, a situation would occur and um, it would be emotionally intense enough that the exile was triggered and the manager couldn't contain the exile. And there's all this flooding of emotions, dysregulation. So another layer of protector parts he, he discovered, and he called these the firefighters. And these were the parts that when the managers couldn't do their job, the firefighters would have to come in and put out the flames of the emotion that was, that was raging. And these firefighters could take the form of things like they're very impulsive and uh, it could be um, suicidal uh, um, tendency, uh, it could, could manifest as a self-harming, could manifest in the use of drugs and alcohol, anything to get to escape from and uh, what was happening with the exile part. And um, so what he did was he started to um, he started to talk to all these different parts people had and started to get to know them. And I think this is where the, the guest house metaphor is really helpful. Um, because in Zen we talk about the true self as being non-separate. It's almost like this is the, the, this this oneness or the um, and um, but like and we, we, we can see how we feel separate from each other. You know, we have this sense that I'm a separate self and there's people out there, subject object. But often we actually fail to sh shed the light on how we're often divided within ourselves. And uh, if we're going to move towards some sense of harmony and balance and uh, non-separateness and, uh, and the experience of the true self, we need to pay attention to the divisions within ourselves. And so what he started to do was to, 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 to have this dialogue with the parts in a very gentle, accepting way. And he would start with the protectors, because when you do family therapy, you don't go straight, straight to the child. You, you need to get an alliance with the parents first as well. And so you need to get an alliance with the protectors. And he would 
gradually get the protector's permission for them to step aside so you could then maybe talk to the exile parts. And then gently talking to the exile parts, asking the exile parts what they needed and somehow what, how the, what did they need to unburden so that we could start to free ourselves up a little bit from all the, you know, the traditional idea of the heavy backpack that we carry. So we put the backpack down and take out all these parts and all these exiles and we had to start doing that kind of work. And, um, and interestingly, he'd come to, he'd start to talk to someone and they were coming from this part which he hadn't met before. And he said, well, what's, what's this part that's speaking now? And people would invariably say, doesn't actually feel like a part. It actually feels like myself. And um, so he, he developed this, uh, this idea that um, we all have a, a self and parts. And the, uh, what can often happen very early in childhood is that um, the parts lose their confidence in the self to protect them. And they actually forget about the self. And so a lot of this work is about... Um, reclaiming um, or releasing the self from how it's gotten tangled up into the parts. And then through that work, the parts slowly start to transform. So, for example, a common protector part that we all have very... You know, we can have numbers of this, this, this particular kind of part um, is the, uh, the self-critic part or the self-hate part, or the self-loathing part. And in his investigations and inquiries into when he started to get to know the self-critic part, um, it would often, the intentions of the self-critic would always usually, eventually, would discover that it was all about protection. It was all about making sure that I didn't stuff up again, that I didn't put myself into a situation where I was going to be shamed again. But unfortunately, what would often happen is the, the self-critic part would um, probably go a little bit too far in uh, the degree to which it would turn on the self-criticism. So in a sense, the, the self-critic would inadvertently cause more problems uh, by the deed. And so, but, but by starting to dialogue with the self-critic from, and he, and he, would, he would want to, to start the person to have the dialogue with their own parts. So, and ask, ask the self-critic, you know, what, what, you know, what's its history, what does it need, where did it come from? And but before, before he did that though, he said, well, how did you feel towards the self-critic? If you felt some kind of anger or resentment towards the self-critic, you say, oh, well, this is another part here. So, um, let's, can we just ask that part to step aside? And let, let me just talk to the self-critic. How do you how do you feel towards the self-critic? When you got to the point where you could feel this sense of um, sort of um, curiosity and uh, acceptance and, and, and a genuine empathy for the self-critic, that was indication that the self you were in self, and so then you could have this dialogue with the self-critic from being in self. And through this kind of work, the self-critic would gradually be transformed and could transform more into an inner mentor rather than an inner self-critic. So that was kind of like the, the inner, inner work. Um, and 
I find that that's, um, that's um, a very helpful way of thinking about um, Zen practice um, in that the work that we do on the cushion uh, can definitely complement that kind of work where we start to get curious about these different parts and start to name them, become aware of them and it's also very helpful in terms of our relationships with other people too because we've all got parts and when we start to see, well, you know, um, you know, your wife or your husband or your partner, what's going on here, you know, who's this? <laughs> and you can see, well, this is a part, and for some reason this part's got triggered. It's not who they are, but it's, it's who's the centre right at that point in time. You know, that, that changes and eventually they come back to themselves again. So, um, so there's a sense in which there's a, we can almost think in terms of the, the self within ourselves, which sort of connects as the, the still point uh, with the self, which is the universe. You know? um, and um, it's the self that is not self-centered. And in fact, in Zen, we often call it the no-self. Um, so i just uh, finish with a quote uh, from uh, Joko Beck, who is the founder of the Ordinary Mind School. This is from her book called Everyday Zen. Um, she says here, so, there is only one master, the master is not me, nor anyone else, not Sabha somebody or Guru somebody. No person can be the master, and no centre is anything but a tool of the master. No marriage, no relationship is anything but that. But to realise that fact, we have to illuminate our activity not once, but 10,000 times. We have to put a searchlight on our unkind thoughts about people and situations. We must make conscious how we feel, what we want, what we expect, how terrible we think someone else is, or how terrible we are. That cloud over everything. We are like a little squid that produces a flood of ink, so our mischief can't be seen. When we wake up in the morning, we immediately start squeezing our ink. What is our ink? our self-centred preoccupation, which clouds the water around us. When we live self-centred lives, we create trouble. We may insist we don't like horrible fairy tales, but we do like them. Something within us, within us is fascinated by our drama, and so we cling to it and confuse ourselves. True practice brings us more and more into that plain and undramatic space in which things are just as they are, just functioning. And that functioning cannot come from self-centeredness. Sitting in session, in retreat, greatly increases our chances of spending more of our life in that playing space. But we have to have patience, persistence and posture. We must maintain equanimity and sit. True self is nothing at all. It's the absence of something else. An absence of what? So in her work, I mean, Joku doesn't use the language of parts, but making our parts conscious, becoming conscious of our parts is an important part of the psychological work. And as we, as we transform these parts and let go, we start to open up into the wider spaciousness of who we truly are. So um, we'll leave it at that for today. Thank you.